0: Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth.
1: Hi, and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. It's been a fairly flat market this year, given Little Rally recently kind of taken the worst out of the downturn, but materials and energy just continue to attract so much interest from our investors. In fact, they're really the only two sectors that are still hot this year for so many people. We were joined earlier this year by Gavin Went of MineLife, who's covered the smaller end of the listed mining sector for decades, and he talked through some of the challenges and opportunities in these sectors. Given the year we've had, he's kindly agreed to join us again. Gavin, thanks so much for joining me.
0: Jenna, it's a pleasure to be with you again.
1: Gavin, there's a lot happening right now. I'm going to start with energy and with oil in particular just because we do have a handful of investors with a very strong interest in this sector, but it's pervasive across everyone's portfolio in some fashion or another. So oil prices have moderated a little from their highs earlier in the year, but they're still pretty elevated by long-term standards. Can you talk us through why that's happening, whether you think prices are going to stay where they are, what do you think is going to happen?
0: Sure. Well, oil's a really interesting one because it is still the lifeblood of the world economy. And earlier in the year, we saw a cocktail of factors that pushed the crude oil price up to extraordinary levels, up above the $120 per barrel mark, which is a very strong level indeed. And that was great for oil-producing countries and oil-producing companies, but uh, not so great for consumers and economies where crude oil makes up a significant portion of uh, of their economy. So, uh, in terms of cost, so we saw both very strong demand factors and also significant supply-side factors that help push crude prices higher. Since that time, we've seen a pullback in crude oil prices to roughly around about the hundred dollar per barrel mark, or just below. A lot of that has to do, in terms of the pullback, has had to do with the fact that uh, we're looking at the prospect of a global recession, and we're looking at very strong inflation. And uh, when you put those two factors together, it does tend to dampen consumption of crude oil through the various uh, refined products, things like petrol, things like diesel, things like aviation, fuel. If costs are rising, we tend to find that uh, less is consumed to some degree. So we've seen crude oil prices come off to some degree, but still overall prices are still very, very strong despite the threat of inflation Despite the prospect of recession. And the key with respect to crude oil is that uh, on the supply side, there are significant headwinds that are facing the major oil producing countries, particularly the OPEC nations. They are struggling through years of underinvestment in exploration, production, and refining infrastructure. They're, They're struggling to meet their output quotas. So there's not a lot of Additional crude oil coming onto the market as much as President Biden and the US would love it to. There's not a lot of extra crude oil around simply because these oil producing nations can't pump the oil. Uh, And on the demand side, uh, whilst we've seen a weakening in demand to some degree, as we've said, oil is is an essential commodity. And so, in many respects, it's price inelastic. So, we're still seeing a very strong crude oil price out there in the marketplace at the present time and that is flowing through directly into the earnings of Australian companies that produce crude
1: oil. That's a great summary and leads into the other part of the energy sector that's just front page news at the moment which is gas. A lot of professional and other investors are talking about gas as a transitional opportunity for decarbonisation, but also just utterly necessary with Europe going into winter and so on. How are you looking at gas prices at the moment?
0: Gas is a really interesting one because we've seen even more volatility and, and more upside in gas prices than we have in crude oil prices. Gas was written off about three to four to five years ago as an energy form. There was too much gas, supposedly, if you listen to the experts, and there wasn't enough demand around to sustain all of the projects that were being developed. Fast forward a few years, energy crisis bombarding the world, Ukraine-Russian war, energy prices going through the roof, shortage of gas as northern hemisphere nations, in particular Europe, have transitioned away from fossil fuels, yet renewable energy has not been available in sufficient volumes to step up to the plate to replace the fossil fuels that they're designed to take over from. Uh, You have the energy crisis that we do now, and gas prices and gas as a commodity is front and centre. There are significant supply side uh, issues with respect to gas demand has not eased off despite the fact that prices are rising simply because economies need gas governments need to keep factories working they need to keep the lights on they need to keep their economies ticking over so governments no matter where they are and particularly in europe are lusting for gas. They're trying to get their hands on as much gas as they possibly can. And at the same time, as emerging gas supplies are restricted, you've got record volumes in terms of demand out there in the marketplace. And what that means is that gas prices have been going only in one direction and that is up. And of course, where we are now is we're faced with Northern Hemisphere winter, particularly in Europe, where the gas shortage is particularly acute. We saw what happened 12 months ago with gas prices hitting record levels. We're looking at a similar picture with no prospect of the Ukraine war being resolved anytime soon. So as far as the gas sector is concerned and gas prices, it's a very, very strong outlook indeed when you've got record levels of demand and supply side problems.
1: So that leads into a question I was going to leave to the end because it is of so much interest to so many of our investors and it's absolutely where you play uh, from a specialisation perspective, which is the decarbonization story continues despite the fact we've got all of these challenges in energy. So many investors are very excited about battery metals as a result and the lithium sector is incredibly hot. There are many days when I look at our trading data where we see, you know, five, six more uh, lithium players or hopefuls in the top 10. People are really excited about it. How do you see that interaction between the traditional energy sector and then moving into battery metals?
0: Of course, we keep talking about a transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Uh, But I think a lot of uh, stakeholders in the marketplace forget that that uh, transition will take time. So you need to keep investing in fossil fuels and at the same time investing in renewables so that a transition can take place. You cannot simply switch off oil production today, gas production coal mining, coal-fired power power stations today, and cross your fingers and hope for the best that uh, renewable energy can take its place. And that's essentially what they did in Europe uh, 12 months ago as they headed into their winter. They totally underestimated the consequences of switching off coal-fired power as they were heading into their peak a uh, winter demand season and as a result renewable energy was not able to step up to the plate and replace the coal fired power that was uh, that was lost and that's a lesson that i think we all have to learn right across the world renewable energy sounds fantastic but it will take decades to uh, fully replace fossil fuels in the meantime If we don't keep investing in fossil fuels, things like coal mines, ensuring that they keep running new oil fields, new sources of gas, our existing fields will run down. We'll see even further price increases and shortages, and that will create economic chaos right around the world and lead to further inflation because of rising energy prices. And those rising energy prices will stay higher for longer and will feed through and stay within the global economy, and they won't go away. So we have to bring renewables on at the same time as we invest in fossil fuels, maintaining that uh, infrastructure, and gradually transition it away. I think a really good example, Gemma, is if we look at the United States with their refining industry in the United States, because. It's one thing producing crude oil. It's another thing refining it and turning it into the everyday products that we need, things like petrol and aviation fuel and uh, diesel for trucks uh, and utility vehicles and that sort of thing. In the United States, because of the fact that uh, there hasn't been a lot of investment in new oil fields, we've not only seen a cap now on US crude oil production, At best, we're starting to see production levels fall. But because there's been an associated lack of investment in refining capacity, that crude oil that gets produced, is harder and more expensive to turn it into the products that uh, motorists need and the economy needs. And that's simply because of the fact that there are no incentives now in the United States to develop new oil refineries uh, because of the fact that uh, if you are wanting to develop an oil refinery, typically these things require a payback over decades. But if you're in fear that, uh, hey, my oil refinery will be shut down within 10 years, you're not going to spend the money. So as a result, what we've seen in the United States, and it's typical around the Western world, is that refining capacity in the crude oil space has fallen to a 30-year low. And that has meant that those refined products, things like gasoline and diesel and aviation fuel those prices have actually risen faster than crude oil and that's helping to fan inflation so it's really important that we keep investing in fossil fuels to ensure an orderly transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy there has to be investment in both and politicians and society has to realize that that is the way it has to happen otherwise we're going to see a situation of chaos. It's fine to say, hey, shut down coal tomorrow, shut down oil tomorrow, shut down gas tomorrow, but you cannot take every internal combustion engine vehicle, every diesel powered vehicle off the road tomorrow because our economy would grind to a halt.
1: So I know we have many investors who agree with you and we have plenty of investors who are trying to I guess, play both sides of this story, but this excitement for the transition and the rise of renewable energy is just, it seems to keep heating up. I feel like we talked about this six to 12 months ago and it's, uh, it's even more kind of hot than when we talked about it initially. When you look at, I'm going to specifically talk about the lithium sector, but you will also talk to the other battery metals that we need to consider. When you look at the lithium sector at the moment, what are your thoughts?
0: Lithium's had a great run in 2022 and it's outperformed just about every other commodity. Ironically, probably only thermal coal would be the other commodity that's up there in terms of its price performance. And that's fed directly through into very strong performances in the equity market of those companies that are producing and also exploring for lithium. So that's been really fantastic and investors and traders have made a lot of money in the lithium space so far during 2022 however we have seen a little bit of a pullback in sentiment and equity prices over the last week a couple of reasons for that uh, there have been some analyst downgrades of some of the lithium producers or emerging lithium producers on the australian market there are some rumors in china that uh, some battery producers have cut back on their production quotas because of issues related to COVID, et cetera, which might mean that uh, demand for lithium concentrate might fall. Look, I think the outlook for lithium is still outstanding. And I think the fundamentals are still strong. I think what we're seeing over the recent week or so is simply profit-taking within a sector. It's outperformed the rest of the resource space. I think investors even within the lithium space, have sort of been saying, "Hey guys, that this 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 run has to has to have some some uh, bumps in the road," and really there haven't been any. And so I think what we're seeing is a, an opportunity for profit taking. One or two of these, if you call them negative news stories out there in the market, has been the catalyst for some investors to take some profits off the table. And you've got to remember, if you're invested in companies like Pilbara Minerals, for example they've just been generating an enormous amount of cash. They have seen an extraordinary share price performance. So it's only right that investors look for catalysts like this, opportunities like this to perhaps take some money off the table. And at the same time, I think they're looking around the marketplace for opportunities, looking for some of those other commodities and companies that haven't performed so well in 2022 and they're taking some profits out of the lithium sector and saying, well, look, if China does reverse its COVID policies, if China does start to stimulate its construction sector once again, what are some of the undervalued, what are some of the beaten up commodities and companies that could perform really well? Things like, for example, iron ore, which has fallen from $220 a tonne last year to below $80 a tonne recently, it's starting to move back towards the $100 per tonne mark as investors start to become more optimistic about China opening up. Same thing in the copper space, a battery material, renewable energy uh, commodity that is starting to move again, five or six month high, optimism around China. Investors are starting to switch, I think, and take a, do a little bit of bargain hunting in the market at the present time.
1: Yeah, I think it could safely be said that bargain hunting in the lithium sector is a challenge. Uh, I do know a lot of our investors, I want to say it was back in May, there was a sort of 19%, 20% fall in most of the year uh, the sector, when uh, Goldman Sachs came out and said everything's massively overpriced, they fell. Everyone bought like crazy and then ran super hard. So if you managed to uh, to pick that little window, you had a, uh, you've had a really good few months. And that idea of rotating into something that's perhaps had less of a run seems like a good idea. I think we've had plenty of people who've been doing that. You've talked about China, and I'm so pleased because that was exactly where I wanted to take this. Could you talk us through what's been happening in the Chinese property sector? For those who've not been watching or thinking about this too much, we had a, you know, the big news story of the collapse of Evergrande uh, well over 12 months ago now. There were those who were anticipating a cataclysmic collapse in the Chinese property sector, residential property specifically, and those who were assuming that it was not going to be so serious. Can you talk us through what's been happening and what the implications have been?
0: Oh, well, the problems in China's property sector are decades in the making, but it's come to a head recently in the last two years, shall we say. And a lot of that has to relate to debt levels and defaults on debts within China's property sector. I mean, China's authorities have taken measures to cool their property sector as a result, to reduce the amount of lending going into the property sector, which was creating this property bubble. Uh, But this, in turn, has negatively impacted the overall level of growth within the Chinese economy because such a significant component of China's growth comes out of the construction sector. So what we've seen, and a great example is the iron ore price. I like to think of iron ore as being directly correlated to China, and not only China, but its property sector, because as China has tried to cool its property sector over the last 18 months, we've seen a corresponding fall in the iron ore price from a record high of $220 per tonne back at the peak to about less than $80 per tonne just recently. And all of that has to do with the fact that uh, China has tried to take the steam out of its property sector. And look, it's done that, but at tremendous cost. Uh, So where we are now, well, China still has problems. It still has debt problems, and there are big issues within its uh, property sector. However, there's also tremendous pressure domestically now for China to address concerns around these ongoing COVID lockdowns and pressure for China to get its economy moving once again. And that's not only domestically, but that's also internationally. There's global pressure. So what we've started to see over the past week or so are baby steps in terms of China starting to open up in terms of potentially easing some of their COVID restrictions and at the same time, providing some stimulus directly into their property sector, into their construction sector. And the big hope there is that we will start to see an increase in some of the bulk commodities demand things like iron ore in particular perhaps coking coal and also copper which is they always call it dr copper because it's a great barometer for uh, expectations around economic growth we've started to see copper re-emerge it's currently trading at a five-month high and a lot of that has to do with china and the better tone that's coming out of China with regards to optimism around their economy. We're not out of the woods yet, and we've still got inflation fears and recessionary fears, and uh, those things aren't going to go away. But certainly, markets that are looking for some rays of sunshine and looking for green shoots and looking for optimism, Uh, they've got more out of China in the last week or so than we have for probably the last 12 months. So there certainly is, if you believe in what funds are doing in terms of buying into commodities, they're buying into iron ore, they're buying into copper, there is a feeling that things are starting to turn. And if we're not going to see massive movements, there's certainly a feeling that the worst is behind us, at least, with respect to China.
1: It's a really interesting perspective and I think useful for a lot of people. Uh, Feel free not to answer this one, but um, there seems to be hints of a diplomatic thawing between Australia and China. And certainly a lot of our mining magnates seem pretty, pretty pleased about that. Do you think that will have any impact on demand or do you think certainly with iron ore, it's imperative and there was a reason why no restrictions were placed upon it in the first place?
0: Absolutely. Iron ore was the one commodity that China did not touch, that China did not place any sort of restrictions on purchasing. And there was a reason for that because China needs iron ore and it needs at the right price and it needs the highest quality iron ore and that's exactly what Australia produces. I mean, China is a domestically has enormous reserves of iron ore. In fact, China is one of the biggest producers of iron ore, and it does use some of its own domestic iron ore, but it's of a lower quality, so it cannot produce the high-quality steels that it needs. And uh, as far as its blast furnaces are concerned, generally they're geared up, particularly if they're producing high-quality steels, they need high-quality Australian and Brazilian iron ore. In order to produce those products. So that's why we haven't seen China implement any restrictions on Australian iron ore. Certainly, it would be a tremendous boost to our major companies, BHP, Iron Ore, Fortescue in particular, which investors would hold directly or indirectly through their super funds. If there was an easing in restrictions, it would just send better signals to the market, particularly those companies that are still involved in coal, uh, because China, of course, did place significant restrictions on Australian coal exports. Ironically, that probably worked against China, because what it did, as soon as they cut off Australian thermal coal, it made coal generally more expensive in the market, and Australia was able to find other markets for for their thermal coal production, places like India, for example, but prices rose. So the impact of cutting off Australian coal really backfired on China, and Australian coal producers are laughing whether they're producing thermal coal or metallurgical coal because current market prices are closest to are close to the highest they've ever been. So uh, it's not just about China, but certainly you could say that the the catalyst or maybe the tipping point was the restrictions that were in place on Australian coal exports by China. But it would be great to see an opening up of trade. I'm not holding my breath uh, for that to happen, but generally I would say that irrespective of what happens with respect to China, the outlook for the commodity space is really really strong simply because china's not the only game in town europe wants to develop its car industry europe wants to develop its uh, battery materials space north america does as well the rest of asia too japan south korea taiwan they want the renewable commodities they want to establish these uh, future-facing industries so it's not just about china like it was in the past
1: a really interesting perspective. Uh, Some of my uh, older broker friends sort of liken this period to uh, sort of around the GFC when the market was just terrible for the sorts of companies that a lot of Australians held, but China and the demand for commodities was just such an exciting place to be, and so you found yourself in this extraordinary situation where the market looked terrible, but uh, but economically the country was absolutely thriving in many ways, and it was all down to the commodity sector, and China was at the heart of it. But as you say, the global demand for a lot of things is really interesting. We've talked a bit about renewables and the continuing demand for fossil fuels. Talked about that this, this transition, as you mentioned, you know there doesn't appear to be any short-term likelihood of an end to the war in Ukraine, which is a tragedy, but it does seem to have put a lot of pressure on countries to think about energy security and having sort of onshore secure assets to maintain their power and all those sorts of things. Do you see that playing into that demand?
0: Certainly, and that's what's taking place right now, as you point out, particularly in Europe. Countries that perhaps had become very reliant on one source of of energy, for example, Germany with respect to Russian gas, have had to very rapidly rethink their energy strategy. It's all about sovereign risk, energy security, being able to ensure that factories can continue to run and citizens can turn the lights on and keep warm during winter. You know, the provision of energy for citizens is a fundamental Aspect of government. And I think some of those European governments had forgotten that. I think they were living in a naive world where green politics had overtaken reality. And I think there was so much momentum behind the move to renewable energy so quickly that there was a certain degree of, well, just switch off fossil fuels, carbon intensive energy sources, bring on renewables, whatever we've got, and let's hope for the best. And of course, it couldn't have happened at a worse time because with existing shortages in the market, that coincided with the start of the Ukraine war. So all governments are having to reassess their energy strategies. And that means a combination of fossil fuels, I believe, if they're sensible, keeping those running investment and incentives for for fossil fuels so you have that surety around energy supply and at the same time, spending lots of money on encouraging renewable energy so that you can build up the renewable energy as quickly and reliably as possible and then make the transition gradually away. As I say, this isn't something that's going to happen in five or 10 years. It'd be great if it could but it's not, that's not the way it's gonna happen. And there are so many global challenges out there at the moment. One of the big issues in the renewable energy space as we move towards EVs is simply getting our hands on enough material to make that transition. Copper is a great example. We're not talking about powering the economy per se because sunlight is free, wind is free but you have to be able to harness that energy. And so what you then need is to build the batteries, the collectors that can collect that energy, store it, and then you have to invest massively in energy distribution infrastructure because our current power grids just won't cope. So for example, you need copper we need an extraordinary amount of copper. At the moment, we're not going to be able to mine enough copper to ensure that the energy transition happens. For example, we need a new Escondida every year as a minimum. Escondida is the world's biggest copper mine that's currently producing. It took about 20 years from finding to bringing to market all up. But we need an Escondida every year in order to all of the experts say, ensure the energy transition, the fact that we need, we have access to enough copper to make the infrastructure happen. Is that going to happen? Well, I would suggest that that no, we're not. It's actually getting harder. If you look at the amount of spending on exploration, it's been decreasing. If you have a look at the projects that are up for development, it's getting harder to fund those projects. They're often in places where banks will not want to lend readily because of sovereign risk issues. So at a time where we need more copper than it has ever been mined before, there are significant challenges. So that's a major headwind to the renewable energy thematic. And that's why I say we cannot just simply move away from fossil fuels today, tomorrow, next week, five or 10 years. They still have to be there because we're in uncharted waters. We don't know if we're going to be able to access commodities fast enough to ensure that transition to renewable energy, it might take significantly longer than we currently think it will.
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting challenge and you can see the extent to which markets and governments are grappling with it at the moment. Uh, just to change tack a little, because I got this question at a presentation I was giving the other day, and I didn't have a great answer, but you may, uh, which is that a lot of investors who, particularly those who invest offshore as much as they invest in Australia, have been looking for a really good hedge this year. US market's off about 20% if you're investing in uh, the S&P 500. If you're in the NASDAQ, you're down about 30 uh, A lot of investors were hoping that gold would be the hedge in this kind of market and they don't feel it's performed as they expected it would. What are your thoughts on that?
0: I think if you look at the US dollar price of gold, that's probably a fair comment. At a time of insecurity, war, inflation, China, COVID, we've got a lot of problems out there in the world at the present time. Theoretically, there should be a time, an opportunity for gold to shine, and in terms of its price appreciation, that, that hasn't happened. I guess, however, if you look at gold's price performance in US dollars compared to the majority of the commodity space, it's actually held up very, very well. It's actually been, has been an insurance policy over the course of 2022 it's been relatively stable. So one could certainly argue that it it has done its job. Has it outperformed? No, it hasn't. What's interesting about gold too, though, is you must not only just look at it in terms of its US dollar performance, but you should have a look at it in the context of its performance in terms of other currencies. So, for example, how has it performed in Australian dollars? How has it performed in terms of any euro, Japanese yen, Brazilian real? whole host of international currencies, the gold price has performed really, really strongly. It's gone up quite strongly during 2022. It's just only in the context of the US dollar that gold has traded downwards to sideways during 2022. And gold has had to deal with, in US dollar terms, has had to deal with a couple of reasonably big headwinds. And it's all to do with the United States. It's all to do with the fact that the United States has have put their interest rates up faster than anywhere else in the world so far this year, and what that has done is that has attracted investors seeking a return, seeking yield. So a lot of money has flowed into the United States. So rising interest rates has attracted money. Rising interest rates typically can be negative for gold, so that's a that's a first factor. But with all of the money going into the United States, that's pushed up the value of the U.S. dollar, and a rising dollar typically is negative for gold. So you've had rising rates, rising U.S. dollar. Both those factors have coalesced and meant that uh, there's been a negative knock-on effect with respect to, to the price of U.S. dollar price of gold. Gold's performed really strongly against other indices, and it's performed really strongly in terms of other currencies. But in the U.S. dollar terms, it has struggled because of those factors about rising US dollar and rising rates. Now, where are we now? Of course, there is a feeling that the worst is behind it as far as gold is concerned. We've seen gold hit to its highest level in a couple of months. It's getting very close again to that psychologically important uh, $1,800 US mark. There are There's talk now that the the worst as far as U.S. interest rate rises uh, is probably over. We're not going to see the same sort of dramatic increases. There's also hints around the world that perhaps inflation is starting to, to moderate as well. So the picture going forward as far as gold is concerned is starting to look more optimistic And I think we're going to see a situation where investors will start to look for value. We started to see investors already starting to move into some of the larger gold stocks. As those stocks start to perform in share price terms, we're likely to see some of the money coming out of those companies and going into the mid-cap and and smaller cap space. But it does become a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. You just need some investors to start looking for value, to dip their toe into the water, the, the ripples start to become bigger, they become waves, and then that starts to permeate throughout the sector. But investors have been looking for a bottom in gold and I think we've probably found
1: it. Well, that's interesting. I'll uh, I'll remember that for next time I get asked the question at a presentation. Two last questions for you, and I know this is where people are going to be most excited to hear your thoughts because you do focus on the smaller end of the, of the market and you look at a number of companies that I think a lot of our investors are always very keen to hear about. What do you see as the most attractive prospects for investors who are looking for materials and energy exposure at the moment?
0: I think there's the best exposure I, th- I believe that investors could, could have. And look, I think the recovery in our resource sector will be broad. So I think there'll be energy, bulk commodities, precious metals and industrial commodities will all perform well. But if I had to pick one sector at the present time with a near to medium term view, I would pick the industrial slash base metal sector. The reason I say that is that so far during 2022, the base metal sector has been really beaten up. We've had recessionary fears, we've had inflation, we've had rising energy costs. All of these factors have combined to dampen sector sentiment. And a lot of the producers within the base metal space have suffered in share price terms. They've said, uh, I guess we've seen uh, profits impacted because of falling demand. We've seen margins decreasing because of rising costs right across the board, a lot of that related to energy. And as a result, that's really impacted sentiment. And We've seen some selling in the sector. There's there's no doubt about that. So equity prices, equity valuations have fallen so far during 2022. You look at other sectors that have performed really well, such as the coal sector, uh, the lithium sector, for example, they've done really, really well. I think what we're looking at now is because the fundamentals for some of those base metals haven't changed, in particular copper. In fact, we're just closer to the abyss, if you like, than we were 12 months ago with respect to the shortage of copper and the overwhelming increase in demand that is set to take place. And so we've kicked the can down the road for 12 months. And we've had a situation where copper prices have fallen and copper producers' equity prices have fallen. But I think there's certainly an opportunity there simply because of the fundamentals are so strong over the medium to longer term. So I think what we're likely to see is investors going into the market, having a look around, looking at those sectors that have outperformed, those sectors that have lagged. And I think the base metal sector is such a sector where I think there is going to be a significant rebound. I think the other aspect that goes along with that too is we will likely to see, we are likely to see more corporate activity. We saw a couple of months ago, BHP making a move on Oz Minerals, taking advantage of the fact that the copper price was was low in order to launch uh, corporate activity. That hasn't dissipated. I think what we're likely to see is more corporate activity win the space. So even if investors themselves don't necessarily recognise the value that's there in the moment amongst some of the base metals, we'll see catched up uh, predators further up the food chain starting to look further uh, downstream looking for opportunities to acquire. So I think what we're going to see is we're going to see equity prices moving as investors see look, at, look for bargains And there's also going to be an anticipation around uh, growing corporate activity within the base metal space.
1: I think it would please everyone to hear about the prospect of a broad-based recovery and also to be looking at some of those sort of more specific areas. Is there anything that you feel is worth being cautious about at the moment, given that, as you say, coal and lithium in particular have run terribly hard?
0: I think in the near term, there would be two commodities I would just be cautious about and I'm not necessarily pessimistic on them, but if I had to pick two commodities where there could be some downside, first would be crude oil, simply because of the fact that uh, the markets don't quite know if we're heading towards a recession. If we are indeed heading towards a global recession, then demand for crude oil is more than likely going to ease. So there's the potential for some crude oil price downside, assuming that OPEC doesn't step in with more production cuts, and that's been their strategy. So it just makes sense that uh, we could see some more downside in crude oil prices in the event that we get close to, a, to our recession. At the same time, crude oil is such an important component of the, the everyday world economy that there is downside protection there. The other commodity is lithium. And I only say that not necessarily based on any fundamentals because I think the fundamentals for lithium are very, very strong. But there is the potential that we might see some more profit-taking in the sector. I say we might see some more profit-taking. The fundamentals are also really, really strong, both on a demand perspective and also from the supply side. But, again, if we see a continuation of some switching, some, some bargain hunting, there is the possibility that we might see a continuation of summer investor funds the flow of funds from the lithium sector into other sectors that have outperformed so far in 22 like the base metals uh, space like the precious metals space and i say that only because of the on the basis of relative valuations nothing necessarily sinister or negative that's underlying the lithium space investors might just start looking for um, for bargains and undervalued situations in sectors that haven't performed so well in 22, where there is strong upside.
1: Based on what we see at the moment, I imagine where there is profit taking, some of our guys might be taking that as an opportunity to jump in, but uh, we'll see what happens. Gavin, MindLife, which is your company, provides research for investors. You often provide commentary in the media on all the sectors you've been talking about and more. Where can people go to find out about MindLife and the work that you do?
0: fantastic well thanks for the plug Gemma look the easiest way is to have a look at our website which is www.mindlife all one word dot there's a fairly comprehensive overview of what we do and how we believe we can help investors we focus 100% on the resource sector and most importantly we specialize in the junior companies the smaller end of the market which i think is infinitely more exciting than any other part of the uh, the ASX. And uh, there's always something interesting going on.
1: It's uh, it's certainly an area that a lot of our investors are very interested in at the moment. Uh, Gavin from MindLife, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Pleasure, Gemma. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much for listening also. As always, we love hearing from you. We get fantastic feedback from you guys. We love getting your questions and any suggestions for future topics. This is most certainly one of them. So please just email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening.
0: Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking
1: into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.